Brooklyn Radio, alright? This is how we doing it, New York style. This is Small Talk. My name is DJ Ayers, and uh, I've got two guests today. Uh, one is Chino, BYI. Uh, he has written uh, three books, Mascots and Mugs, Peace Book, World Peace Book. Is there a fourth book? Um, there's uh, Mascots and Mugs, there's Peace Book, there's Peace Book Reloaded, and then there's World, World Peace Book. Right. Okay, four books. Uh, and uh, you're also uh, a legendary vandal from Brooklyn. Um, I don't know about how legendary, but I'm indeed a vandal, and I am from Brooklyn, and I still live here, so uh, that'd be correct. Um, that's not the sound of police dogs chasing him down right now. That's just a local. <laughs> <laughs> this is my other guest uh, who has a brand new book and has also written uh, just a whole parcel of books. Uh, Adam Mansback, uh, Angry Black White Boy, The End of Jews, uh, Go the Fuck to Sleep, uh, which is a children's book for adults. And uh, your new book, Rage is Back, is out this week. Uh, and that's a novel about graffiti writers, um, which is why I wanted Chino to come, too, so we could talk about graffiti books uh, and about your new one that's coming out now. Yeah, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, the book drops tomorrow the 10th. Probably be out by the time this hits the air. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Chino, um, why are there so many people in New York with the nickname Chino? Um, there are a lot of Latino people here, and it's a Latino nickname. So uh, everyone in my family had a Everyone in my family had a nickname growing up. Um, mine just so happened to be Chino. My younger brother was Negrito. My older brother was Stuto. And I've got a cousin, Fuji and Butchie. And everyone had an odd nickname. But uh, on the scale of odd nicknames, mine wasn't so bad. <laughs> and uh, when it came time to write graffiti, I know there were lots of people writing the name Chino already. But I didn't, during my generation, see anyone aggressively pursuing the name so uh, I took it as a challenge, and I tried to get up with it as much as possible. And uh, But yeah, but why there are so many Chinos in New York? There are lots of Latino people in New York. <laughs> there, I have a, uh, a Facebook friend who's called OG Chino, which always gets under my skin because I'm like, no, you're not the OG Chino. There's another OG Chino, but then it's like there's also Chino at the bodega, you know, who I buy soda from. <laughs> So, so I have a funny uh, story about uh, OG Chino, who's actually a cool cat. But um, I was at South Pole one night, and one of the brothers from uh, uh, Dilated Peoples approached me. And uh, I'm spacing on his name right now. But he walks up to me. He's like, yo, can I ask you a question? He's like, you really Chino BYI? And I was like, yeah, who are you? He introduces himself. It's very good to meet him. There's a lot of love. He's like, by the way, yo, this is my man OG Chino right here. And every time he tells someone his name is Chino, they're like, BYI. So I kind of thought that was funny. So I, I guess it answered that question that I guess when I'm not in the room and another Chino introduces himself, they sometimes think he's me. <laughs> um, did, did you ever, uh, did you worry about like when you started doing uh, your books about putting your real government name next to your graffiti name? Um, yes, I was actually terrified because I was involved in print for, with the source, I, I had a column in the source magazine from, uh, September 94 till, uh, June 2005, ran almost 11 years. Um, I was an editor at YRB for a little while. I contributed heavily to Stress Magazine and Mass Appeal and a host of other, uh, 
magazines. And up until it came time to publish a book, I was content being a part of the process. I never really had to stand next to anything I had done. You know, I quietly used my real government name, David Villarente, as a contributor in the source every month. And I tried to keep those two personas separate, but I wanted to keep my real name in print. But at the same time, I never really had to stand up and take credit for being David Villarente or Chino or for being both of these people. So uh, it was a bit of an issue for me, you know, and, and public speaking was hard in the beginning, just because, again, I had no qualms being a part of the creative process. I enjoyed being a cog in this big machine and kind of hosting a spotlight and being able to shine this light on some of my favorite artists. But suddenly people wanted me to talk about it and they wanted me to be in front of a camera. And that was uh, very challenging because I grew up and, and still to some degree, I'm very secretive. You know, I have a small group. I know a million people. But, you know, my close friends can all fit on the same couch in my living room, you know. So it was a, a challenge for me to open up and speak. But the more we did it, the more comfortable I got. And I'll tell you what's really challenging is having a co-author like Sasha Jenkins, who's a speech ninja. So, you know, he gets up there, he talks for 45 minutes, bodies it, covers everything under the sun. And then there I am like, okay, and now they're crickets. So, uh, you know, it was a bit of a challenge, but I had to get comfortable owning up to who I am. And now it's not so difficult. I've had about uh, six years to get comfortable with uh, doing interviews as David Villarente. But initially, yes, it was a huge problem for me in the beginning. Um, I want to switch things up for a second uh, and listen, uh, listen to uh, Samuel L. Jackson read uh, part of the audio book. Uh, go the fuck to sleep and then we can talk about that a little bit the cats nestle close to their kittens the lambs have laid down with the sheep you're cozy and warm in your bed my dear please go the fuck to sleep the windows are dark in the town child the whales huddle down in the deep. I'll read you one very last book if you swear you'll go the fuck to sleep. That's amazing. How did that come about? Uh, the audiobook came about pretty simply. I mean, the book wasn't out yet, but had kind of started making noise. It was a crazy thing because Go the Fuck to Sleep originally was not supposed to come out until... October of last year, but I did a reading of it in April at a museum, and the buzz started. It kind of went viral, um, and it shot up to number one on Amazon before it existed as a book. Like it hadn't even gone to print yet, and so we rushed it out to try to get it out in time for Father's Day in June, and you know sold the audio rights. and The audiobook company approached us and asked who we wanted on the audiobook. And my illustrator, Ricardo Cortez, and I kind of hastily put together a list of people that we thought would be good reading it. Um, Sam was on the list, Christopher Walken, Werner Herzog, who also ended up recording a version. Um, Slick Rick was definitely on the list. <laughs> and uh, it just happened very quickly. They went out to Sam. He wanted to do it. You know, the book is only like three and a half minutes long, so he read it the next day. And the day after that, he was on Letterman reading it. And it was just like this crazy whirlwind thing. So... You know, he just, he jumped on and he was real cool about it. Have there been people you think that like associate him with the project and don't, don't know that, that it's not his thing? 
Oh yeah, there's definitely people under the impression that he wrote the book, that it's Sam's book, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I'm happy to give Sam uh, the credit among random internet <laughs> connoisseurs. Um, <laughs> but he and I, it was the cool thing is that I, you know, I got to know Sam in the process, and when I wrote um, this Obama spot, this video called "Wake the Fuck Up." Sam jumped on and starred in that. And that was a viral video that we did in like October um, in the thick of the election season. And, uh, you know, he bodied that. So, you know, if if him getting credit for Go the Fuck to Sleep is what leads to uh, him jumping on for Wake the Fuck Up, it was a good a good uh, exchange. So so but how does that work? Uh, Like start to finish. Can you tell me about Wake the Fuck Up? Um. I was initially approached by this kind of unorthodox super PAC called the Jewish Council for Research and Education, Education and Research, and they were looking for my permission to use uh, Go the Fuck to Sleep. They wanted to riff on it and do something that addressed kind of apathetic Obama supporters who had been active in 08 but were a little more laconic now. And, you know, they didn't really need my permission. They could have used it, kind of fair use would have covered them spoofing Go the Fuck to Sleep, but... They approached me and I was like, uh, I'm down, but I got to write it. So I jumped on board and wrote it. And as it developed, as the script and the story came together, it became clear to us that Sam was like the guy to star in it. The plot of the thing basically is there's a little girl whose family is not doing their part. And so she goes from room to room trying to impress upon them the need to get involved and, you know, reasons that the election matters and things Obama's done, things Romney will do. And when they sort of fail to respond sam kind of pops up out of nowhere and curses them out and yeah i love him cursing out children yeah there's nothing better than that unbelievable yeah. <laughs> um has did anybody from um the obama administration acknowledge the video did you did you get anything back from that we got a lot of back channel unofficial stuff the the greatest of which was that somebody from the the the, the super PAC was backstage with obama at an event and he was quoting the the ad like he was doing a sam jackson impression and quoting my <laughs> script which was pretty fucking incredible yeah yeah smoking cools probably <laughs> <laughs> quite possibly um do you uh y- your new book is out do you like promoting your books uh do it, you always hear stories from writers who like hate book tours so i'm curious about that yeah no i'm not one of those writers i like getting out of my house i mean i think being a writer, being a, a fiction writer, being somebody who embarks on these lengthy projects, I mean, a novel can take two, three, six years to write. Um, it's kind of a feast or famine thing. You're either isolated and in the lab working, or you're kind of in this mega public moment where you're suddenly freed and running around promoting and doing interviews. And yeah, I enjoy it. Um, you know, it can be a little taxing to be on the road a lot, of course. And now I have a kid and being away from my kid for too long is no fun, but I do enjoy it. Um, I, I I like connecting with, with readers and I like connecting with my people and it's an excuse to do that. Um, and with this book especially, you know, the, the people that I'm doing events with are like some of my favorite folks. You know, I was at MoMA last night with Alan Kett, who's like a guy that I've been friends with for 20 years and Jizza, who I just met but is really dope and a bunch of other people, Jay Smooth, Jay Period was DJing. Being here with Chino right now is an honor. I've been waiting to meet him for years. So, um, yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me to be on the road. Um, it, and I'll stop. 
because the dog is barking. <laughs> um, Chino, same question for you. Do you, uh, when it comes time to promote the books, do you like to promote them, or do you are, are you kind of more interested in working on the next thing or the next project? I mean, I'm always interested in working on the next project, um, but I do enjoy traveling. I enjoy meeting fans, our supporters. Um, the one thing that gets a bit tired, though, and I'm not complaining, is that I sign a lot of books, and people want signatures, and they want all sorts of things written, and they want throw-ups and clouds. And so, you know, a book signing for me is a little bit more involved. And I think, you know, the first uh, launch we did for Peace Book was at the Read Space in we sold, I think, a little bit shy of 200 books in two, two hour, under two hours. But people also showed up with their own books. And then people also showed up with black books. And then people show up with anything else that you're in. The, the Mark Echo video, Old Issues of the Source, All City, or any book, The Art of Getting Over. And they want you to sign that area. So at the end of the day, my, my, my wrist is just exhausted. But beyond that, I do in love, uh, I love and uh, enjoy meeting new people. And the energy is always very positive. And uh, I enjoy uh, t the feedback from the fans, what they love about the book, and maybe what might have been missing, you know, and it gives us something to reach for for the next project. But yes, I, I enjoy traveling and meeting um, our supporters. Um, yeah, you you, uh, you should have gotten famous for doing stencils like Banksy. You could just hit, hit each book with a stencil and be out. Oh, man, I'm, I'm from the uh, old school, man. I enjoy, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of a signature, you know, and I think that it's the most... Uh, fundamental part of graffiti it's it's the first like building block of it all it's really at the end of the day like having a good smile or a good handshake it's what's going to greet the world when they can't see the rest of your work you know so on a very simple level and then it's the you know in, in the scale of evolution it's like you start by doing a lot of tags and then you evolve to your throw up your piece your burner and then you know you move on to your fine art career but uh it's a little bit different with the internet and kids learning backwards and maybe not being so involved in graffiti anymore. There are a lot of guys that are fascinated with big, beautiful burners. Nothing wrong with that. But they skip past the whole bombing aspect of it. You know, there's a culture now of aerosol artists out there who have removed graffiti from the equation. So it's a little bit different. So, you know, in an old school thing, I still value a dope hand style, you know, and a good signature. So at the end of the day, uh, I applaud Banksy for what he's doing with the stencils. And I think he's done some very fun, creative things with them. You know, I was in London in 1999, and there were these uh, stencils everywhere that said legal graffiti uh, area. It had a very official-looking crest, and I kept writing on these things in broad daylight. And then one of my friends was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you're going to get arrested. And I was like, no, look at the sign. And he's like, no, that's a trick. Like, and I had no clue who Banksy was back in 99, but uh, I thought it was ingenious. I was like, this dude's brilliant. Like, I wrote on all of these spots, and I got tricked as a graffiti writer in the and then I used it as an excuse. Wherever I saw the stencil up, I just took the initiative to write there. And I was like, if I get stopped, I'll just play the role of the uh, ignorant American or tourist. But, uh, you know, I still enjoy a good signature at the end of the day. Um, it, it's, I saw the, uh, the huge graffiti show that they had uh, at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. And um, they included all these other parts of kind of the culture as they see it, like they had uh, an ice cream truck that Mr. Cartoon had um, painted the whole thing, but it's like not graffiti. And, you know, and they had Ed Templeton like photographs 
and he doesn't do graffiti at all or he's a painter and he's big in LA but he's not like a a, a graffiti artist by any stretch of the imagination and then you have other stuff that's you, you know photos uh of you know ear snot and those guys fucking around and those are guys that bombed and like like actually do really crazy shit in in New York but like it's it's a weird thing about curating uh a show to to wonder like where does it start and where does it stop because it could be just tags you know or or you could have canvases or you could not include canvases you did a um a gallery show last summer uh and so i wondered like what that experience is like for you doing a gallery show and also just in how you decide what's going to be in it and what's not going to be in it well you know the uh, mocha show in la um I-, I will say that i don't think that i'd want to be uh I wouldn't want to have that challenge on my hands to figure out who gets in and who doesn't. You know, it's just, there's just, as a fan of graffiti, it's just like being a connoisseur of music or anything else or asking, you know, which kids you love the most. It's like, as a fan, you know, people ask me all the time, who's the best graffiti writer? And I'm like, I couldn't even answer that question. Like, is an orchid really that much more beautiful than a rose? Or like, I just, why can't they both be dope? You know, or why can it all be dope? And, you know, I see things a little bit differently. Like, I, I wholeheartedly subscribe to the theory that, like, it's a, an ecosystem and you need tags and you need throw-ups and you need burners and you need the guys that suck because if they didn't exist, then you wouldn't be good. You know, and, and it's all very important to the culture. So as a fan, I see things a little bit differently. I'll be the first one to say that I'd rather look at a Jester tag or an SE3 throw-up by Hayes and some of this photo real, really flashy, colorful, like block long mural stuff. You know, I mean, there's a signature. Like, is the whiz throw up to me is so much better than like some high tech 3D piece by some European cat with no soul, you know? So, but the uh, Mocha show must have not been an easy job to put together. I wouldn't have wanted to have that task on my hands. Um, when curating the show that I put together last year, the show was called uh, Brooklyn Yes Indeed. Um, the BYI acronym is a crew that I grew up with. Uh, it's a bunch of guys that I paint with. The crew was originally Brooklyn Yard Invaders or Beyond Your Imagination. And we just kind of flipped it uh, to be Brooklyn Yes Indeed. And it featured some of uh, my favorite graffiti guys from Brooklyn. And, you know, not all graffiti. Jamel Shabazz was featured in the show. Uh, my pal Trike, Trike 1, T-O-G-N-D, Graffiti Never Dies. He's a uh, Cat that used to bomb the uh, F trains when I was growing up, the BMTs and INDs. And, uh, you know, most of my letterline guys didn't get a lot of shine. So it's, you know, been a part of my challenge to kind of shine the light on some of the guys that missed out on some of the books in the early 80s or some of those documentaries. But uh, Trike was in the show. My man Ribs from Sunset Park. Keo was in the show. Jamel Shabazz, uh, Joust, GND. And uh, I hope I'm not leaving anyone else out. But it was just a collection of Brooklyn guys, and we were celebrating Brooklyn culture here in Brooklyn. It's listening to you talk, Chino. It's it's just striking to me how much of what you say is, to me anyway, totally applicable to all of these other art forms within hip hop too. Like, you know, that soul trumps technique in so many ways. You know, like the fact that I mean, the same way that you'd rather look at a jester tag or an is the whiz throw up. Um, I'd much rather watch somebody execute a b-boy routine who's perfectly on beat and whose every gesture means something, you know, even if they keep it very simple and clean, 
rather than somebody executing crazy acrobatic air moves and power moves and not landing anything and looking like they're doing gymnastics or some MC who is, you know, rhyming 15 syllable words but doesn't really have any content or any flow. I think all these things really, you know, they carry over. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I definitely agree with that. That kind of takes us into a, to another question I had, um, uh, which you come across a lot when you talk to older writers um, and uh, when you read the interviews that you've had in some of your books, um, where there, there's this like, in the 90s, um, when a lot of us uh, got really into hip hop, there was this like KRS-One monolithic uh, presentation of the the four elements and like you know if if you if you're a hip hopper you have to either DJ and rap or do graffiti uh, and DJ or you know whatever it was graffiti's kind of the odd man out of that because graffiti was around before any of that other stuff started before anybody was breakdancing to breakbeats or anything else there there were people painting on trains um, and then beyond that, like you read the interviews with these guys and they were into the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, because they're from Manhattan uh, and they were super into taking acid and listening to Parliament Funkadelic or whatever and just bugging out and painting. Um, but, you know, that's in the 90s. It, it was all about like, you know, graffiti was something that you do in the background while people rap. It's interesting because, uh, you know, when you talk to the guys that were the first generation of New York City graffiti guys, most of them were listening to Sly and the Family Stone or Hendrix or, you know, something other than hip-hop. There was no rap back then. You know, and I'd talk to Blade, and he's telling me that he's doing whole cars with his transistor radio, listening to, like, Jimi Hendrix's album on the elevated layup. And, you know, these guys, the, you know, graffiti culture predates hip-hop. You know, and uh, it has its roots outside of hip hop. And then I can understand the argument where it's packaged with hip hop. You know, I, I realize that I talk to a lot of people and they're like, you know, my first impression of graffiti was Dondi in uh, Malcolm McLaren uh, Buffalo Gals video. And, you know, there he is painting and there's this hip hop track and you've got some B-boys in the background and it's all fused together. You know, and when that video landed in Europe somewhere, you know, they kind of took it as a package deal like. The shoes, socks came with the tie, and it was this package deal. So I've met a ton of Europeans that are like, I'm a B-boy, I'm an MC, I also paint whole cars, and, and then they're kind of bugging out that I don't breakdance, or that I don't DJ, or that I don't rap. And I'm like, nah, it, it just, you know. So I can understand, you know, like there are people that just support all of the elements, and they've kind of taken it as a package deal, but... You know, here in New York, I didn't have many friends that were all of the above. I had a couple of friends that wrote graffiti and also rapped, a couple of friends that wrote graffiti and also b-boyed, but I don't think I knew anybody in New York City that did all of the above. You know, and again, the arson is quite possibly. Phase two, son. Phase two. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen him break dance, though. No, he, he claims he invented up rock, though. That's, I, I, I need to see it. <laughs> I definitely need to see it. I think that was a like a, a 90s thing because I, I think you and I are the same age and I remember that presentation also, the notion that maybe maybe an 80s thing. I mean, I, m I remember getting into, I started emceeing and DJing around 86, 87 and there was that notion that you had to be proficient in at least two art forms and 
preferably three, in order to really claim hip-hop in a certain kind of way. And I think that, you know, it had its benefits in terms of giving cats a certain kind of discipline. There was the expectation that you really knew all your history, too. Granted, there was a lot less history then to know, a lot less music to master. But I do remember really clearly that presentation. And I want to say that the source was part of that, you know, in terms of that branding and that lifestyle. And I've also met a lot of European cats who, yeah, they saw, they saw Style Wars and it was all of a piece. And, you know, like, I, I've been in Stockholm a lot in the past couple of years. And, you know, apparently Style Wars played on Swedish national TV one night in 84 or whatever when there were two channels. So, like, half the kids in the country saw it on a Thursday. And by Friday night, they were bombing trains because they just, they got it. Like, the, the package was clear. The ideas behind it were clear. And particularly with graffiti, there was no translation process. There was no awkward rhyming. There was no you know, half-assed DJing, like, these kids pretty quickly got the ethos down, you know, the the tension between art and vandalism, the tension between fame and anonymity, between beautifying and destroying, and they, like, they ran with it pretty, pretty solidly, it seems to me. What I will say also, though, is that, uh, you know, I grew up, I mean, I'm a little older than you guys, but I grew up listening to disco, and, you know, when uh, Sugar Hill Gang first came out, like they were still disco stees like the you know if you look at that album cover there's a cd cover out of their greatest hits and they almost look like they're performing in you know at studio 54 or something like that and they're all dressed in suits and it does look like a disco group but uh i was listening to hip-hop or rap you know king tim the third and spoonie g and i think some those were some of the first records i ever purchased the funky four plus one more the early grandmaster flash stuff so we were listening to hip-hop before graffiti came into my life i was always fascinated with graffiti but i was a big fan of hip-hop and rap already so you know i had jimmy spicer super rhymes and there were a ton of other albums that i had we bought a uh, blowflies rapping dirty because it was the first record as a kid that we saw with the explicit warning sign on us we were 11 years old and we were fascinated we we're like wait they're rapping and they're cursing we've got to buy this <laughs> you know and so i listened to rap long before I started writing. And then by the time I started writing graffiti on trains, you know, hip hop was just like the soundtrack to that magic era of my life, you know, where like, I still remember listening to the show on my Walkman, like on route to go bomb trains. And it was a very weird time for music because you could be listening to rap one minute and then the radio station would throw on like some like summer of 69 or broken wings or some shit. And you're like, wait, hold on a second. But it was the era of my life. And so it's interesting when I talk to people that they're like, yeah, you know, when I got into hip hop and I got into graffiti, but like hip hop was around for me before there was graffiti. So it was just like, it's not like I got into hip hop. I already was a big fan of rap and, you know, the culture. It's a very different thing. I talk to people and they're like, I got into hip hop. And then you look at pictures of them and suddenly their whole stees and their whole swaggers changed. You know, they're a very clean cut one year, and this is the year I got into hip-hop, and then the pants are a little baggier, and they've got on sneakers and a hoodie and maybe a baseball cap. But we were forced to shop where we lived and what was local to us. So the Lees and the Adidas and, you know, suede and leather fronts and leather snorkel coats or whatever was hot that season was what was accessible to me at the Fulton Mall, and that's what all my other friends were wearing. So it's very interesting when I talk to people about hip-hop that are from different areas of the world that grew up during different periods in time, because it's just like, you know, for some, they're like, yo, when I got into hip-hop, and then they're in cross-colored shit looking like crisscross, and so. Um, 
What, did you have people around you who were into New York hardcore? Because I know a lot of graffiti writers uh, were into New York hardcore, and it's um, a, a fair amount of, of white dudes that in the 90s would stab you, you know? Do, do you know those guys? Oh, yeah, no doubt. Um, my best friend and my partner, uh, graffiti, my earliest graffiti partner wrote Dape, D-A-P-E. Black Cat, grew up in Bed-Stuy, um, and he was a big fan of hardcore music. I mean, dude listened to, like, you know, Black Flag and, uh, you know, y you name it. And dude was just into it. Uh, sticky Little Fingers and Seven Seconds and, like, really crazy bands. But he put me on the hardcore music early on. And, you know, I kind of gravitated towards Black Sabbath first. I was a big oh, fan yeah. of, like, Black Sabbath early. And then I learned about Led Zeppelin through him and Aerosmith. And then, you know, he was just like, yo, I'm going to a hardcore show matinee on Sunday. And I went there, and I remember the first show I went to, I was just absolutely stunned, like, what the hell are they doing? I didn't understand the whole notion of moshing and not getting into a serious fight with somebody. But, you know, I mean, I've, I've seen Sheer Terror, Gorilla Biscuits, Warzone, uh, Murphy's Law, Fishbone, um, Bad Brains, Murphy's Law a lot. Like, I was a huge fan of Murphy's yeah. Law. And they toured with the Beasties for a little while, so you could catch the Beasties and Murphy's Law at uh, Irving, not Irving Plaza, what was... Uh, Ah, uh, the Ritz. Yeah, before it was, uh, I don't even know what club it is now. But uh, yeah, I went to a ton of hardcore shows. And there were a ton of guys that wrote graffiti that weren't the hardcore. You know, a lot of guys from Astoria. And, uh, you know, it wasn't so popular in the hood. You know, I might have been like a very rare dude that, you know, there was a space in Manhattan called Irving Plaza. And I was just going through storage about a week ago. And I found some old club flyers, passes, and ticket stubs from shows. And I realized that in July of 86 or 87, I was at Irving Plaza on a Friday night, and I was also there on a Saturday night. And the Friday night show had uh, Duke of Denmark's Kings of Pressure, uh, uh, Michi Me and the L.A. Posse, uh, Jungle Brothers, Ultra Magnetic, Cool G Rap, um, True Mathematics, Just Ice, uh, MC Light, uh, Audio 2, and Ultra Mag. It was a $7 venue. And then the next night I was in the same room for a Murphy's Law, like, I don't even, oh, a Suicidal Tendency show the next night. So I had a very interesting, like a broad range of musical interests growing up. And, uh, you know, I think graffiti largely loaned itself to that experience, you know, because uh, when I was growing up during the 80s, the cutoff lines were clear. Like we knew what neighborhoods we couldn't visit. And we knew which neighborhoods we were welcome in. You know, like, historically, some of the Italian neighborhoods weren't so uh, understanding of outsiders coming into their neighborhood. So we didn't bomb 18th Avenue, Big 18, Little 18. We stayed away from the B-Line a little bit. We didn't go out to Fresh Pond Road much. But we knew we were welcome in all the Latino and black neighborhoods. So we could go to East New York. i go to Spanish Harlem or, or Washington Heights and hit trains if I needed to. But uh, graffiti, you know, saying that it was segregated, the city was still to some degree segregated, but... When you saw a group of like multicultural kids together, either they went to a prep school or they were graffiti writers. You know, it's like basketball, sports. There was no other New York pastime that it involved that many different people from different backgrounds. So, you know, it sounds ignorant saying, but I grew up in Fort Greene. Like it was, you know, when my hair grows out straight, it grows, when it grows out, it grows out straight. Puerto Rican Filipino. Like I stuck out like a sore thumb in every school I went to up until shit until i was a grown man really but uh you know I, I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood and graffiti was the experience that kind of 
brought me outside of my neighborhood. It brought me into Brooklyn Heights. It brought me into Manhattan. It brought me uptown. It brought me into Astoria, Queens. So we were in Greek neighborhoods. It's all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, graffiti largely, I think, kind of opened me up to that. And, and I think that experience loaned itself to my appreciation for other cultures, my understanding for other cultures, and my uh, appreciation for other musics beyond and outside of hip-hop. Adam, this is a question for you. Um, graffiti writers in general can be pretty cagey, uh, and I think part of that is because um, it's illegal to write your name on a mailbox. Uh, but beyond that, like there's a lot of graffiti writers that are just weird people. Uh, and your your book really gets into that. Um, did, when you were doing research for this uh, and talking to guys, were there people um, who you wanted to talk to who you weren't able to? No, not really. Um, you know, a lot of the research, the quote-unquote research I did for the book, didn't take the form of traditional research where I'm a guy who's like actively writing a book and I have specific questions and I'm seeking certain people out. Because, you know, I've been a graffiti aficionado and fan for most of my life so it's more like by the time I started writing the book I had a wealth of knowledge most of it gleaned directly from friends you know from people like phase two bomb five zephyr part one ket keo um that I was drawing from and of course all the literature all the books you know everything I could get my hands on guys I grew up with in Boston also who were writing you know so um, I wasn't really in the position of starting from zero and having to like seek guys out and 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 buttonhole them and be like, yo, tell me about how to get into a yard or whatever. Um, but I also have found that, um, in my experience, most graffiti writers and part of why I was drawn to graffiti even as a little kid as a hip hopper was that yeah they were the eccentrics and the mad scientists and the mad geniuses and the weirdos of hip hop culture in a lot of ways was my feeling. Um, I've always found graffiti writers like for the most part, really easy to talk to and very willing to talk, largely because, you know, so much of the history has been erased, literally. Um, so the documentation is so spotty. I mean, you know, even today, guys are reconstructing archives just to kind of like, you know, replace and create a record that doesn't fully exist, you know, because, um, I mean, when I think about how much art, how many amazing works the city of new york has destroyed it's mind-boggling you know so i always found the people i mean it's a self-selecting thing too like if if cats didn't want to talk we didn't talk you know but most of the people that really um helped me to learn what i needed to know for this book were the were the historians were the ideologues were the um you know vocal segment of the graffiti community you know i mean um i i guess i started i met phase in in like 95 when i moved here and i started working with ket on stress and on the magazine i was running called elementary and um for whatever reason he and i really hit it off and he kind of let me edit him in a way that he wouldn't let other people <laughs> like everybody at stress had 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 tried their hand at being phase's editor for the columns he would write and you know he wouldn't really let anybody touch his words because they're his fucking words and, you know, he's phase. And for whatever reason, I don't know, he let me uh, kind of get in there and make suggestions and make edits and make cuts and talk him through what he was trying to say and how to best get it across to a general population that might not be the same readership for, uh, for IG Times or whatever. And, you know, it just got to a point where he would call me on the phone and talk, you know, 
for like an hour or two hours and break down all kinds of shit. And I would be just listening wrapped, you know, um, soaking up as much stuff as I could. Um, so, you know, for me, graffiti has always been a, a, a world of stories, you know, um, and those stories might be about the art, but they might be about running from the cops. It might be about the fights, you know, like the stuff that is memorialized and talked about and rhapsodized over, you know, is a is a broader swath of the culture than just like who painted what, when and where. Um, but, you know, it's interesting too. I mean, my when I when I sort of like first became really interested in graffiti, it was around the time that the buff was eradicating art from the trains. It was around the time that, you know, the the war on graffiti that Mayor Lindsay declared in 1972 was kind of wrapping up um, after $300 million spent and who knows how many lives, you know, ruined in the process. Um, so I think it was a transitional moment. And I remember even at the time as a, as a kid, kind of thinking that this was a really poignant and sad time because you had these guys who had originated, pioneered an art form, watched it go worldwide, watched it be celebrated, watched people in cities around the world take it up, and yet it was about to sort of stop existing in its original form in their own city. I just remember that, you know, being struck by that. Um, the notion of of creating an art form and then outliving it in some sense seemed really unique to me even then. I mean, I couldn't offhand think of another example of that, you know? Um, so I think from a very early point in my own kind of experience of graffiti, of appreciating it, of, you know, whatever, I think I, I saw some need to uh, document it, you know, it, even informally as much as I could figure out how to do. So I think all of that led to the, to the book, you know, 20 years later. Right. Right. Um, Chino, for, for your books, it's a, it's a really different kind of a thing because you have to get all these guys to let you use their pictures and, um, the, especially the scanning the black book stuff. Um, so s sort of the same question, were, were there guys that you were trying to get their art, uh, into your book who, uh, who were just hard to find or unwilling or, you know, um, thankfully I had a history of working with a lot of these guys through the source magazine. And when I first started knocking on doors and making phone calls, this is pre-internet, um, circa 94, people were like, what do you want to do with my photos? And it was a very interesting time because there were a lot of guys who were suddenly trying to move on with their professional careers. And the last thing they wanted to be was still pigeonholed as a graffiti writer. You know, I'm trying to be taken seriously as a creative director for this company and I'm an art director here now and I don't want to focus on my graffiti. And when I was in school or when most of these guys were in school, their professors or art teachers told them, if you write graffiti, never put it in your portfolio. It's kind of fascinating how things have come full circle now, and these same people have most of their portfolios largely comprised of graffiti-related projects. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when I first started asking for photos, people were a little bit like, what do you want to do with these things? And I had people telling me, oh, it's going to be in a magazine, you must be getting money, I need $1,000 per photo. And I, I, I figured out um, how to work, you know, the, the, the room kind of sort of. And I was like, you know what, let me see who I can work with first. And I started using the artists that were willing to contribute photos. And what's very fascinating about graffiti is graffiti writers, no matter how old they get, they're still competitive. Yeah. And, and they can't stand to see someone from their generation get some shine and then be left out of the picture. So I really, re I realized, well, you know, I can't get uh, 
Adam to give me some photos, so maybe I'll get some pictures from Ayers. And then after Ayers is in the magazine, Adam wants to be in the magazine now, and it's just fascinating how that works. But I realized, let me uh, gather the stuff I can use, and I'll work with guys I can work with first. And then, uh, you know, eventually you, you find that artist that you profile who's a rival of the guy that didn't want to give you photos last week. And now he has to be in the magazine. And not only does he have to be in a magazine, but he has a shoebox of photos that he's willing to donate to my cause. So thankfully, I kind of figured out how that worked. So while working on the books, I typically figure out who I can work with first, the guys that are willing to support me. And, and thankfully, I've, you know, done a good job. You know, every time we've used someone in print, I'll call someone and say, hey, I'm working on something. And they're like, I don't even care what it is. You know, you've always done the right thing by me. Whatever you need, I got you. You know, and... and that's kind of how it is in 2013, but, you know, back in the 90s, it was like pulling teeth sometimes, and everyone wanted, you know, these absurd amounts of money, and I'd have to have these conversations with grown men, like, you really want $5,000 a photo? Like, just out of curiosity, when was the last time you've gotten $5,000 for anything? Like, why start here? Like, establish a good working relationship, I'll get you in print, if you've got something you're working on, we'll get you in print again. You know, and, and people started to come around slowly but slowly. So by the time these books came around, you know, there was already a 20-year culture or history of there being graffiti in print consistently. And people understood how to play the game suddenly. And they were learning, like, if I miss out on this opportunity, I miss out. So typically what I do is I know who fits what project I want to do. I, you know, I get 90% of the guys that are going to be involved in a project. So when I approach the difficult guys... I'm like, hey, I'm doing a book right now. And, uh, you know, Days and Pink and Doze and Zephyr and Tack and Wayne and, you know, Dash FC and this guy and that guy are in it. And when you scroll down through that list, they're going to hear two or three names that'll trigger something in them. Like, really? He's in there? What'd he give you? Oh, yeah, I could give you something better than that. But a month ago, he was adamant about not giving me anything. So, you know, and it's just like, it's like suddenly there's this big party going on and they're the only ones that weren't invited. Now they have to be involved in the project. Yeah. So it's very interesting what motivates people. You know, 95% of the time it's people willing to support me. And that other 5% of people that have to get back at someone else that's in that book. Yeah. But either way, creatively, we benefit from it. And, and what I will say is at the end of the day, everyone that's been involved in, you know, these previous print endeavors have all been happy with the job. And they're very thankful, and, and especially some of the older guys who have kind of missed out on the spotlight during the 80s and 90s really feel like, you know, I got my shine now, you know, in 2012. So, uh, you know, I'm grateful for the support at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, the, you guys both, it sounds like, um, independent of your art, approach this stuff as fans um, of graffiti uh, going way back to the trains. Um Adam, it must have been really fun to to give um, voices to a lot of those characters and to get to to retell those stories. Yeah, I mean, this book, this book is really the most fun I've ever had writing anything, including "Go the Fuck to Sleep," which took me like you know thirty five minutes. Um, <laughs> I mean, this book ultimately, I think, rests on the voice of the narrator, um, who is the eighteen year old son of two famous graffiti writers. And it's kind of born into the culture. So it's not his shit. It's his parents' shit. It's old man shit to him. It's not necessarily something he's feeling. And in a lot of ways, he's surrounded by kind of burnout writers. Um, and his father is absent largely because he had to run because of graffiti. So 
you know, he's ambivalent at best, and um, he has just been kicked out of his prep school for selling weed. He's very much adrift when the book begins. Um, but yeah, I, I knew that the novel was going to rest on the success or failure of his voice. He had to be funny, articulate, believable. He had to be able to kind of move between a lot of worlds from prep schools to, you know, drug houses to tunnels, you know. So um, I had a lot of fun crafting his voice and allowing him to kind of while out and be digressive and sort of meander, but also keep the story moving. Um, and yeah, the the sort of secondary characters, the cast of graffiti writers who get involved, um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing more fun than uh, making up graffiti writers' names or <laughs> creating personas. And, you know, there are touches of, of people that I've known you know, was real. were were you thinking when you were writing those, uh, when you were coming up with those names, do these letters flow? Um, I was thinking partly about that. I also was trying to make sure I wasn't stealing somebody's name in in it. Oh God, yeah. Which of, of course I I think I ended up doing once or twice because you know I don't know all of the billion people who are writing graffiti on the planet now. Um, yeah, I was thinking about letters. I was thinking about lanes. I was thinking about everything that make goes into a good name or a believable name or. You know, crew names also were a lot of fun, particularly as as Tina was saying earlier, you know, BYI has meant a bunch of different things over the years. So for every crew name that I made up, there were always going to be two or three, you know, iterations of what those letters stood for. Um, yeah, doing, yeah, I mean, incorporating, folding in stories and personas and names and mi- mixing and matching. You know, fiction is always about a certain kind of alchemy. There's not a lot of one-to-one correlations. There aren't people in the book who are based on real-life writers exclusively um you know there's a lot of uh a lot of tips of the hat a lot of you know flipping stuff around but yeah it was a lot of fun and um that was certainly like a part of what motivated me to write it along with the story i wanted to tell and the adventure i wanted to bring to life and you know all that kind of thing right right um i think it would lend itself uh to to making a good movie as well yeah we've been fielding a, a bunch of interest actually i mean the book comes out tomorrow but there's been some reviews already and they've been really good and there's been some good buzz and uh you know when that happens like people start hollering so my agent is getting a lot of you know nobody's like throwing a bunch of money on the table yet but there seems to be some interest yeah i see it as a as a pretty damn good movie or an hbo series increasingly when i think about adapting my work or having my work adapted i'm more drawn to high-end cable than to film because you know I've been through the process before of cutting whittling down a novel to a two-hour script length it's much less attractive than building it out extending it over the course of you know four 13-hour seasons or something so you gotta get Peter Jackson to do it oh shit (laughs) (laughs) you'll get nine hours of a movie (laughs) Uh, can we listen to some music uh, before we go Sounds good. And you're sitting at home doing this shit? And you should be on a medal for this. Stop fucking around and be a man. There ain't nothing out here for you. But yes, there is. This. Yo, Nas, yo, what the fuck is this bullshit on the radio, son? Chill, chill, that's the shit, girl, chill. Hey, yo, yo, pull out a shade, man, let's count this money, nigga. Hey, yo, Nas, put the jacks, put the grass over there, you 
True indeed, you know what I'm saying? But when it's real, you doing this even without a record contract, you know what I'm saying? Well, you doing this since back then. I'm yeah. saying, regardless how I go down, we gonna keep it real. We no trying to see many matches and yo. poops, kid. True, yeah, you know how that go. Where's Grand Wizard and Mayo at, man? Yo. Take the got the Phillies. Time, Take yo, this yo, Hennessy, hey, man. Hey, yo, start, come on, come on. So when that when that came out, uh, and I know you're both Nas fans because you both told me Nas songs to play when we listen to music. Uh, you, when that came out, you had to know where it was from, right? Um, when that first came out, I was working at the Source, so we were reviewing albums six months before they came out. So I was able to rock this for. We actually had this for almost a year before it hit the. You know was released commercially so Schefter told me that story of going in getting the roughhouse demo and all that yeah the the yeah i heard that story <laughs> i mean i still have so much music that was sent to the source for a review but then they couldn't clear a sample you know i've got a mary j blige and a method man flowing over the original year all that i need not the remixed music in right, the background right, right. and uh the biggie ready to die demo and you know a ton of other like music that just didn't make the final cut on the album but this was one of the albums it's very rare that a new artist would uh new artist music would show up at the office and you were just feeling it off the top and this was one of those albums where we were like yo i need a copy of that yeah it's, it's so amazing to look back at the buzz around nas this this kid you know from queensbridge who at that point you know had had only had had dropped the the barbecue verse um the search, the search, the verse on back to the grill, and halftime was out. But like, I mean, it's so, it's really when you think about it, so little music, so little build up. The buzz was so intense. There was so much about this album that was unlike anything that had ever happened because the the roster of producers, like that, was unheard of. I mean, that that became the model to get all these hot producers, get them to contribute to your debut album, bless you, give you the pedigree. But like, you know, Q Tip wasn't doing outside production, like. You know Pete Rock and and Primo and these guys and even Large Professor like they weren't yet known as guys who would lace whoever they were like very much in their camps you know um, hearing that intro the fact first that they played the 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 barbecue verse in the background just the way that everything was layered um, it sounded so chaotic you know like these guys it sounded so unrehearsed also like there's that amateur feel to it. It's like nobody in the skit really knows what the point of the skit necessarily is, but they're real happy to be there. They're real focused. And I mean, even these little snatches of dialogue have become classic. Yo, put the grants over there. You know, like everybody can quote that. And it's also it's also wild to me that, you know, when you look at Illmatic now, right, you, 10 tracks, one isn't really a track because it's the intro. Ain't Hard to Tell was already out. Halftime was already out. You're really getting seven new songs and that's it. You know, and there's a lot of classic 10 song hip hop albums, but like, it wasn't even that much material, and we all bumped that album like until the wheels fell off. You know, it's just, it's just one of those moments. I mean, I remember copying that album the day they came out, and also the, the album has all these shadow versions too, like the the version of It Ain't Hard to Tell that Stretch would play with the different lyrics and the remixes, and 
Nas was able to like fans were so focused that like when remixes came out, like when the World Is Yours remix came out and he flipped the lyrics a little, like Chip Tooth Smile became Gold Tooth Smile and he went from rocking uh, uh, Tim's to, to Nike's or the other way around because it was spring now or whatever, like just those little details or he threw in the Giuliani 666 line, like these things meant so much, like those little flips, like cats were just paying attention in a way that was so intense, you know? Word up, man. Fat caps and shit. Pilots and shit, Griffin, homemades, layups, the whole shit, man. For all my real graph niggas, son. For all fat niggas know what it is, niggas out nightly, son. Getting that tag on and shit, yo, yo. I reminisce days wearing all black, painting my knapsack. Summer squash fellow calling me, I had to crack that. Freaking forward inside, burgundy outline. Late make a strip shine, nigga, I take mine. Tags on the J line, E train tunnels, flat blacks, got stacks, fat caps by the bundles. It was like that. Take my spot, I'll be right back. Hand styles, they major. Stomp blocks in Deja. My rustos and labor about to give birth to flavor. Vandal squad cops play blocks in a LaSaber. Trying to catch niggas, creating they name, looking for fame. Sometimes you get locked, it's just part of the game Anti-freeze in my griffin, I was making a stain First car to the back of the train, simple and plain Wrecking rack spot, shutting them down, leaving them slain Real talk, sun graph on the brain, it was insane, nah, man That song is called Got the Fever, um, which is pretty funny for there to be like such a literal song about graffiti that came out in 2012. A couple of joints out about graffiti, but, uh, you know, I do feel that it's, uh, you know, been overlooked and it's great to see it at the forefront. I saw the video that they put together for this and, uh, I believe there were a lot of smart crew cats and a lot of current graffiti artists involved in the video or featured in the video, which is hot. But um, I'm, I'll be honest, man, I've got a disconnect to, you know, what kept me in the loop with recent music was working at Southpaw and working shows and seeing cats perform. But to be quite honest, man, it's like I've got a free Sirius satellite subscription. I rarely turn it on. And, and most of the stuff I rock at home is off my iTunes so, but I did catch the video. I was excited about it. And in the spirit of like the artifacts and, you know, the graffiti community, because there's such little out there for us, we do support, you know, those limited like products and acknowledgements and endorsements. So, you know, if you look back, going back to the 80s, some of these graffiti mu- movies in hindsight were horrible. But because there was so little out at the time, we embraced it because it was some acknowledgement of the culture and, you know, but the beauty of this is that dude is actually dope and can flow. So it's it's a yeah. huge bonus. It's funny. Listening to this um, just reminds me, makes me reminisce about how part of the profile of artists like in the 80s and in the early 90s, these, these times we, you know, we're kind of waxing nostalgic about so often, uh, you knew which MCs wrote graffiti. You know, like that was a part of their profile. It was a part of just sort of the persona that they put out there. You knew that the artifacts and Fat Joe and Karis One and Master Ace and like certain guys were part of that. You know, you just, and it, it, it was somehow important 
as a listener, as a fan, in some amorphous way. You couldn't put your finger on it, but they got like an extra point for it, you know? Um, those affiliations, those abilities, whether or not they ever talked about it. You know, I don't remember Master Ace ever rhyming. I don't remember Joey Crack ever actually rhyming about writing graffiti, but like you knew he got up, you know, and you knew who he was down with, and it was just it was part of the pedigree, you know? The same way that you knew that certain MCs were nice behind the wheels, you know, or that certain DJs could rhyme a little bit or whatever. Like, it's part of what we were talking about before, that versatility, you know? So, Adam, this is a, uh, a newish guy that uh, that you brought, uh, whose name is Ka. Uh, and uh, I did a little research, and it turns out that he was originally um, in uh, Natural Elements, uh, which to most of our listeners is not going to mean a, a damn thing, but I thought I'd point it out before we listen to this. Browns, Brown. Brownsville section of Brooklyn, USA, has been a tough neighborhood for as long as most New Yorkers can remember. That one in the chamber, that one in the chamber, cold game like cocaine, I freeze you. I rode trains, the pros came as leisure. Was crazy poor, now I'm trying to get mad rich. With a good girl, you couldn't tell because she a bad bitch. Wow. That one in the chamber, that one, that one, that one, that one in the chamber. Recorded track, bought it back, shame the vultures. Future bright, you should like how I came from hopeless. A ill place, milk crates, mangy sofas. All gloom, small room, no range of motion. I'm black when I rap, that's displayed devotion. My medicine better than it's ever been, change of potion. Rhymes sprue, get brewed through pain and motion. They sense the glory in my story, dames groping. Dove and visions, rode the riches, I lane is open. Dows is try, no cloud in the sky, but our rain's approaching. The style's wild current, can't tame the ocean Magician inscription, flame on paper, no pages smoking Fearless realness, I ain't on stages boasting Hammer sashay, the last day gauge, I'm toting With me, minds get free, cages broken Season vet, you should accept the sage is spoken That one in the chamber, that one, that one, that one, that one in the chamber that one in the chamber, that one, that one, that one, that one in the chamber. Before I ever cooked the fish, I was scale chef. I ground down a pound to the tail flesh. Strong back niggas, bring it to your frail chest. My block courses, life pass, fail death. The blind don't feel me like there's no braille left. That one in the chamber, now I give doses. This ferocious hypnosis. That one in the chamber, P90 Protestant Unlocked boxes, shots stocked in the ottoman Rob niggas, large figures with the polished 10 Pawn guard starve hard, I was in polished then That one in the chamber Now I drop calm bombs, watch it slob it in A metal artisan with the darker skin Set the table, fix the plate, pour some glass Definite seconds before them years forces the fast Living off rough streets scar me Now it's hard to be garlic if I ain't eating hardy Them hunger pains had me in the street blunger things Looking more like paupers, not the son of kings That one in the chamber, that one, that one, that one, that one in the chamber That one in the chamber, that So tell me a little bit about that and, uh, and kind of about how you find uh, new rap music You know, I think actually that, uh, that Keo put me onto this cat um, Man, I find new music kind of uh according to what people i know are listening to posting on facebook you know like um at this point it takes a recommendation or two for me usually to bother to check something out because i'm with chino like i don't listen or check for a ton of new stuff um so in this you know in this case it's funny because it's like i got excited about a new cat that i thought was nice 
And it turns out he's not a new cat, which is probably why I am feeling him. He goes back to the era that we're all talking about. You know, he goes back to the 90s. It's funny. And I was having this conversation with Jizza last night. And he was like, yeah, I don't really listen to any new music. I listen to 70s funk and soul and pop. And, you know, I'm not really checking for any of this, any of these new MCs. And I was like, there's this one cat I've been feeling lately. His name is Ka. And he was like, oh, yeah, he's on my last album. <laughs> it's like, ah, um. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, there's so much music out there. It's so accessible. You can easily sit down and go to one of these blogs and download 55 albums every day, which I do, and then I don't have time to listen to it, and I'm I'm not going to, like, audition it in the car with my daughter. You know, I'm not going to, like, write to it when I'm at home working. Um, you know, I collect records, man. I'm still on the vinyl, so, you know, at home, I'm I'm playing... I'm playing jazz and funk and reggae and dub and all kinds of other stuff. I guess an increase, a, a decreasing market share of my time gets, my listening time gets occupied with hip hop. And when it does, you know, I'm still playing that Big Daddy Kane tape from 88 more often than I am trying to find out, you know, what new cat is nice because inevitably the new cat who's supposed to be nice sounds like a watered down Raekwon to me, you know? So um, when I do find somebody, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting, you know? But I find myself mostly like in terms of new new music, it's a lot of vets who I think are still doing good stuff who I've been listening to, you know, like a guy like Doom or a guy like Ghost or a guy like Nas or, you know, De La. Like there's a lot of veterans who I think are still creating good shit on a high level and they've been largely ignored, you know, because like we put artists on a pedestal in this culture, but then we push the pedestal off stage and, you know, I think that's been going on for a long time. Like, Louis Armstrong was the great horn player of the 20s and 30s. He was actually playing his horn better in the 50s. He was more mature. He had a better musical conception. What he might have lost in raw, you know, strength, he had made up for in technique and finesse. But he's not remembered for what he did in the 50s. And, you know, like, a cat like the Jizza made an album in 08 that might be as good as Liquid Swords. Lyrically, it might be more advanced. Um, but nobody's really checking for it in the same way because people have their moment, it gets isolated, and then they get ignored, especially in hip-hop because we haven't figured out a good way to let cats age gracefully. You know, and we, can all, and we like all sit around and reminisce about how dope Special Ed was or Stetsasonic was, but if Special Ed and Stetsasonic were playing a show next door or if that lineup that Chino was talking about at Irving Plaza was playing tonight, like, you know, we wouldn't go, <laughs> you know, sadly. So, Chino, this next one you brought, uh, this is Biddy McLean, Walk Away From Love. Can you tell me about this? Um, what I can say is when you asked me my five favorite songs, I struggled with it. And I was just like, Jesus, man, like, I've got 5,000 songs I could probably mention. And then I was like, let me see what I've played the most on my iTunes in the last couple of months. And he was at the top of the list. So apparently he gets a lot of burn at the crib. Um, and I enjoy it, man. You know, so uh, not not too much to say other than, you know, it's just good for the soul and, uh, you know, makes the house sound good. And, you know, um, it, it helps me work and get through my day. So. OK, cool. So thank you both uh, for doing the podcast with me. Uh, this is Small Talk and we're going to let Biddy McLean take us out. Now clap your hands and stomp your feet. This happens to be a trade wild treat. I don't love 
Brooklyn, Brooklyn, okay? Fucking Brooklyn.